I'd like to speak this evening on the theme of vulnerability and freedom. We've been together a few days now practicing. And it's interesting how this at times rocky and challenging process as we enter into it, and sometimes it seems impossible engagement that we begin with, starts to settle. How we find a certain maybe familiarity or sense of kind of knowing our way around what's going on. And we start to notice the heart and the mind quieten. The body becomes more easeful. I mentioned uh, after one sitting, I'm not sure if it was this morning or yesterday, but just noticing and sensing and imagining you also sense the settling, the stilling, the quietening that happens. Something really precious in that, something very sweet that touches us. And in that, This is a precious opportunity we have here. A rare and precious opportunity. And what can happen sometimes as we enter into this sort of middle territory of the retreat is that actually we've kind of done the transition, we're here. And we're kind of almost able to start to relax, which is great. But what can also happen is we start to think, well, you know, actually I think I can get quite comfortable here. You know, the mind's not quite so reactive, the body's more at ease, the food's pretty good. Hey, you know, my luck's in. And yes, of course, to that, and that sense of ease and being able to enjoy the process, maybe on occasions, maybe not for everyone, but some, that's certainly the case. And even if it's still challenging, one can feel some sense maybe of softening around the edges of that challenge. And sometimes what we notice, and it's not surprising or anything to judge if we do notice it, but there's a certain way in which we might start to think, hmm, actually, just being comfortable for a few days would be rather nice. You know, it's like we settle for ease, for comfort. It easily becomes our default orientation. So we may have come with an aspiration for something more, something deeper, for true wisdom and understanding, for for compassion to flower in its fullness in our heart, to really know freedom, to understand the boundlessness of life. And yet that, that aspiration, that inspiration that we might begin with sometimes we think, well, I've done enough. Yeah, that's pretty good. I've, you know, I've done a bit of work here. Now I'm, you know, I'm due for pudding, basically. So so it's important as we enter into the stage of the retreat where things can flow and deepen that we maintain the orientation of our interest and perhaps our deeper passion. That quality that's there at the core of what moves us that Leela spoke so wonderfully and sweetly to yesterday evening. That we might not necessarily call desire in the classic sense of grasping desire, but that sense of something that moves in our heart, that calls us and calls to us. And so, do we want to deepen here? 
Do we want to realize, to understand, to discover what it is that can be understood by a human being in this life, in this world? And I trust we do. So sometimes the question is asked, you know, well, how how do we do that? How is it that we can really let this practice deepen? And really, it's what we're doing already, being here more fully. One of my teachers would sometimes respond to that. He'd say, people would ask how to deepen practice. The, the response was, well, it's simple. Eat less, sleep less, practice more. And I think it's important to understand what is suggested in that. It's not saying deprive yourself of sleep or food, but don't indulge in more than you need. Start to notice if when we've had enough food <clears throat> and it's particularly delicious, we start adding some more and then end up sleeping through the afternoon. Or when we wake up in the morning and we're actually bright and we've had enough sleep and we think, oh, yeah, but the bed is cosy, maybe I'll just roll over. You know, the sort of the, the idea that suggests that morning exercise involves rolling from one side of the mattress to the other. And I've done my exercise for the morning. That sort of thing. It's like there's a way in which we're not really fully honouring ourselves and our deeper aspiration. And practice more. That doesn't mean that somehow we have to nail ourselves to the cushion and sit here unmoving for days on end. But do we really engage with it all, with everything, with each part, nothing left out. And there's so much here to engage with. And in this way, the practice does deepen. This this vehicle, this form can carry us, support us and guide us into the very depths of the human heart in its luminosity and its shadowy corners. And to bring that luminosity to those shadows. We're asked, we're invited by our life, by spiritual teachings, yes, but more so by our life and the care in our hearts for this life. So we have to also be kind of really ruthlessly honest with ourselves. Not critical, not judgmental or harsh, but honest with ourselves. What are we doing here? Why are we doing this? Because it's not too difficult to start using practice as simply a way of reenacting the patterns of our life. And to the extent and so far as we do that, practice is not so much something that liberates us, but simply reorients or reorganizes the patterns of our entanglement and makes them perhaps a bit more subtle and spiritual in appearance. Like getting attached to nice meditation isn't really that different than getting attached to nice clothes in the end. Or, actually, I like nice clothes, you know. But if we lose them, what do we do? Meditation? Yeah, we're here. Good meditation is important. Nice experiences can be really helpful, healing, transformative. And yet getting attached. We've talked about this. It's not what we're here to do. And so, this process of seeking to gain and avoid, to succeed and fail... If we turn our meditation into this, it just becomes spiritual materialism. And the suffering is really no different. And in fact, the tragedy is possibly greater because that which has the potential to be liberating 
becomes something we, become, we are entangled in. And one of the primary ways, and of course this happens, we do this, I've done it, you'll do it for sure. The important thing is we start to be interested in noticing if we're doing it and when we're doing it and how we're doing it and why we're doing it so that we can start to free up that habitual urge to take anything, any tool, technology, teaching or practice and somehow employ it in that, that kind of give me, get me, make me sort of process. And the fundamental, or at least one of the fundamental elements of the way we engage with life and the way we can start to engage with practice is the process in which we seek to create comfort and safety through certainty and security, through making things become predictable, known, familiar, regular and reliable. So part of what was really challenging as we arrived here, particularly if we were here the first time, in this situation, but equally for those who've done it before, and many times some of you, is that it's actually really quite hard to get any sense of being in control when the mind and the body are all over the place. And that's one of the both important insights and scary elements of the retreat as we begin. Then as it settles, we start to feel like, hey, I know what's going on here. I can sort of do this in a certain clunky sort of way. Maybe it even feels like a sort of smooth thing. I can make it happen now. I know that if it's getting a bit tough at 11.15 or when is it 11.45, I can just, you know, go and get a cup of tea. And then, ah. We kind of find ways to just keep comfortable. And the human condition is one that is in some ways dominated or defined by this urge, this drive to seek security and safety, to have something that's fixed and that's certain, that's reliable, because without that we feel a sense of anxiety or unease or distress. And yet what we notice is that experience is kind of fluid. That's one of the things we see and we talk about in Dharma practice. Things change, things move. And we realize that part of why we're anxious and stressed in our lives is that we're trying to kind of find something that's solid, that's secure, that's fixed, that we can land on and finally say, well, I can stop here. But we can't because the things we try and land on just tend to slip away. Tend to slip away. And so there's this ah, ah, ah going on. And there's this, seems there's this fear we have of things that aren't in our control. Understandably, because obviously... You know, for most of us at times we've experienced pain and hurt as a result of things that weren't in our control, that we couldn't predict or anticipate, and we've been impacted by them. So we start to think there's something wrong with that. That's not okay. I've got to protect myself from that. And of course there are appropriate ways in which we need to protect ourselves, to learn from our experience, to recognize what's wholesome and appropriate situations and circumstances or experiences to engage when or engage with or expose ourselves to. And where, so far as we have an option to, do, to not do so, it's more skillful not to. But this, this kind of urge to organize things into a safe, predictable, reliable form and shape, 
which we sort of do here to some extent. It's, it's coming out of the sense of fear that seems to be it in our lives. Most of us, if not all of us, can probably recognize this sense of fear that can drive so much of our life. How much of our life has been to avoid what we're afraid of? How much of our time and our energy and our obsessive thinking has been trying to avoid what we're afraid of, what we fear? So it's important to understand with fear that it is something powerful. It's to be respected. It has its place, and I'll come to that. But fear takes us into the future. But it's happening right now. Fear draws us into the story of what might happen based on what did happen in the past. And because anything could happen, of course, it's possibly true that the things we're afraid of might happen. But it takes us out of the present and disconnected from the present, we're completely disempowered to engage with it. So to remember, fear is a story, tells a story about the future, but it's happening in the present. And here we can meet it. We can be with the fear. We can experience and know it without being driven by it, without having to say, I shouldn't have this experience, because we do. Courage is not the absence of fear, but the willingness to engage according to our wisdom, our intelligence, our best understanding, despite the fear. Which might mean sometimes we don't withdraw from that which we're afraid of, and other times we might step back from it. It doesn't mean because there's fear we have to stay with the thing. We need to see what's wise, what's skillful. And fear is sometimes a little confused in the way we understand it. Because as a basic response, it's... It's a response to present moment danger that we need to respond to. We need to act. Our physiology and our mind are programmed to act quickly in case of danger because it's no good if suddenly a tiger's coming at you and you're there with your you know, sheepskin around your waist or whatever and you're sitting there thinking, well, this thing looks dangerous, but do you think I should go back to the cave? Hmm. You know, the guys that, and the people who did that didn't get back to the cave. You know, we didn't descend from them. We descended from the one who thought, Tiger, get the heck out of here. And didn't think much more about it. So at that level, yeah, that's real. That's necessary. But because we can remember things, we remember things like the sound that we heard before the tiger turned up and it was a rustling in the leaves. Then every time we hear a rustling in the leaves, we go, Tiger, 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 tiger. It's a kitten, you know. We don't need to run. But we do need to look and see. Oh, oh. Kitten, I'm fine. Tiger, head for the cave. Hmm? So that's what we call intelligence. It's not fear, it's intelligence. It says, step out of the way of the truck that's coming down the road towards you. Or for me, for very visceral experience with motorbikes, because as a teenager playing a rather silly game with some friends and some motorbikes in a field, I managed to get run over by one of them, or knocked over it. Reasonably impactful collision, quite painful. Um, I was rather proud at the time that it did quite a bit of damage to the motorbike. Shows you know what a teenage mind will do sometimes. But anyway, whenever a motorbike comes down the road, I don't need to be anywhere near the road. My whole body goes, <gasps> and I just need to check: Am I on the road? No. Okay, breathe out. If I am, I on the road. I'm on the road. Get off the road. <laughs> That's what I do. 
And yet it's very clear the strength of the response that has some intelligence in it, but needs to be mapped onto the immediacy to know what to do with. So that's perhaps something, and that means then to be able to feel the experience of the fear and stay present. Because if we don't let ourselves feel it, we get flipped into the mental associations and reactions that then take us. And as if we had no choice. And sometimes the actions born in that kind of fear cause harm and pain and we regret deeply. Many times when we've struck out, either verbally or physically or just energetically, it's that kind of fear reacting to try and protect ourselves when actually we didn't need to hurt or do anything. Because we're reacting to our history, not the present. But what that means is we need to begin to really explore our relationship to this process that's trying to protect us from ever encountering fear, from ever encountering the uncertainty of things, which can be scary to us, quite understandably. So one of the fundamental ways we try and create a sense of security for ourselves, going beyond the, the sense of sort of trying to make the world become a solid, fixed, reliable thing or let make other people become a solid, permanent, reliable excuse me, sort of person in our life is this way in which we create a sense of who we are. We call identity or ego structure, a sense of self that we kind of have as a picture or an image or a series of definitions that this is who I am. And this or that is who I am not. And that's often just as much part of how we have the sense of who we are, is who I am definitely not, and probably not allowed to be even if I wanted to be. Even if I was, I wouldn't be allowed to, so I better not be. It kind of goes like that. And somehow that sense of knowing who we are, and of course there's an important and necessary process, and particularly as a young adult and the ages, you know, from, I don't know, I guess through the teenagers and early 20s, where we're actually finding out a sense of who we are and finding an identity, which is more about really recognizing and getting to know what it is that moves us, what it is that touches us, what it is that scares us also. Like getting to know how we're touched by life how we can touch it also. That's a natural and appropriate and essential process in maturing as a human being, understanding how we're touched, how we're felt, how we experience ourselves and how we respond. But this sense of identity is different and on top of that. And it comes with a sense of needing to fix and solidify that into some unchangeable condition rather than something that's fluid that says yeah right now this is how it is rather than or as opposed to it's always I've always been like this I will always be like this and a lot of our attempt to control our experience isn't just because it's pleasant or unpleasant although it is that that's part of it it's because in the presence of certain experiences it reinforces the image that we'd like to have about ourselves. So I feel full of kindness and warmth towards beings. And I'd like to think of myself as a nice guy, so I feel good about that experience. It makes me feel okay. 
I mean, it's lovely, beautiful experience. But I use it, or I could use it, to make me feel I'm okay. I'm a good person. That's an identity. So when I'm feeling irritated by someone, I don't want to have that experience. I'm saying, no, make that experience go away. Because if I let it in and say, well, when I was feeling full of kindness, I must be a good person, then if I'm full of anger, I must be a bad one. And that conclusion is kind of inescapable from the logic. If we take hold of this to make me good, and that turns up, I have to be bad. So I better get rid of it quick. Does that make sense? Do you follow what I'm suggesting there? It's like often what's threatening about experience, even that my knee hurts. It's, I don't want the identity of someone whose body is on its way out. I want the identity of someone whose body is young and fresh and flexible and, you know... And we get that for 20 years if we're lucky. And then, <laughs> unfortunately, it is on its way out. A uh, friend of mine once asked her dentist why her teeth were giving her so much trouble. She was in her, I guess it was her early 50s at the time. And the dentist looked at her and I think quite compassionately he said, you know, your teeth think you should be dead. <laughs> It's only a few hundred years we have been around much longer than that and needed the teeth to keep going for most of us. Really? Teeth are playing catch-up. You know? So why do we need to create the sense of something we can be safe and feel secure in? Why do we need to control our experience so much? We see how compelling it is, how compulsive that urge is, even despite our very noble and wholesome efforts to relinquish that urge. We still see it has power. So we start to release it, but we also need to understand it. The deeper transformation comes with the understanding of why this is going on, what it's trying to produce for us or give us, because... We can easily enough see the suffering and that contraction and that attempt to control, the frustration and the, the exhaustion born of that. And I think, I'd really like to give that up. But we need to equally see what it is we get from it. before, Because that's what we have to give up. So, no one has a problem giving up things that are suffering. What we have is a difficulty with giving up the benefit we got from it. And what we get is that it somehow seems to protect us from the reality of our humanness and the vulnerability, the sensitivity, the incredible impactability of our existence. We are incredibly sensitive human creatures. Incredibly sensitive. I mean, do you notice how just little noises can be irritating? We make a real reaction come sometimes up. Just a noise. Well, another noise can make us feel so sweet. It's like, ah, oh, how lovely. And just little, just little bit of, it's just a little bit of air bouncing against a little bit of skin somewhere in our ear. And, oh, or, uh, you know? That's all that's going on. And we're sensitive to that. Well, temperature, you know? You know how, much, how scared we can be about going outside and getting cold? I get scared about it sometimes. You know, we suggest, let's go and stand out there. It could be cold. Yeah, it could be cold. It could also be 
warm. Yeah, but it's less likely. It's true. But, you know, it's like at some level it's just a bit of discomfort, isn't it? And another level, we've got a little discomfort there because it's a system set up to feel a little bit uncomfortable, which is what cold and a bit too hot, a bit too cold is uncomfortable. Because if it gets really too cold or really too hot, we can't survive in it. And the reality is that the range of temperature available to environments or situations goes from about minus 273 degrees centigrade to plus, you know, two billion zillion degrees in the centre of a sun, whatever that is. And human beings, we can exist in this little, we can be comfortable in the range between probably about 17 and 30. It's a pretty small gap or a pretty small arc within that whole range. You know, and we're actually quite lucky we turned up in a place where that's approximately the temperature. And, you know, right, that's on the outside. On the inside, we've only got two or three degrees, maybe four, either side of centre. 37.8, is it? Get more than four or five degrees one way or the other, and we're gone in the core. Wow, we're really sensitive. We're really vulnerable. This, this thing only works in really carefully conscribed or constructed conditions. You know? And that's how we are. All of us, we're like that. That's the human reality of our physical body. And not just that, but emotionally we can be so sensitive. We can be so touched and impacted by little things. There's a, there's a wonderful story that illustrates this. That a, um, a, a samurai warrior in medieval Japan was walking down a, a dusty lane one afternoon, contemplating deep questions of spirituality and pondering the meaning of life. And he came across a, a sort of a wizened old monk sitting cross-legged on the side of the road. And he walked up to him and he looked down and he said, Monk, you are a man of spiritual practice. Perhaps you can tell me the answer between, sorry, the difference between heaven and hell. And the little monk looked up at him, he said, Hmm, samurai, your robes are dirty. Your sword is rusty. Samurai, your hair is unwashed and you smell bad. You are a disgrace to your noble order. Why should I take the time to speak to you? And the samurai, this proud warrior, you little pipsqueak, you insolent little, pulls out a sword and he's just about to take the monk's head off with one strike of his sword. And the monk looking up at him says, that's hell. (laughs) And the monk, in the moment of just about being able to, just about to, let the sword fly, he realises, oh my gosh, here am I, a noble warrior, about to behead this old monk for just a few words that he said. What a teaching he's given me. It's hell to be willing to kill someone for just a few words. And he feels so full of appreciation and gratitude for this little old monk who's risked his very life to give him a teaching about hell. And he looks at the little monk just beaming in gratitude and just like, wow, oh, thank you. The monk looks up and says, that's heaven. (laughs) 
and the heart opens. We're connected. There's appreciation and love. And we're so sensitive to how a few words can take us into heaven or hell. A few words can delight the heart or wound it deeply. We are sensitive beings. That's how we are. That's not something wrong because that sensitivity is what allows us to touch deeply, be intimate with, be touched by and opened by life. And yet, because of that sensitivity and the fact that maybe in our early experience that sensitivity was overwhelmed by too much intensity of contact, we've, we pull back from it, we withdraw from it, and there's the sense of, I need to control everything. I need to protect myself. I need to not be impacted by this world. I need to somehow keep it out. Stop it impacting me. We can find so many strategies for this. We can get so busy with doing this, trying to control the world, protect ourselves, protect those we care for and we love also, of course. Because this world isn't in our control and it's constantly impinging upon our sensitive, tender human systems. And we react to this sense of vulnerability of being impinged upon by getting busy, by doing something to try and control it, to keep ourselves safe. And that doing, that busyness, is part of our sense of security. It's part of why we get so busy with our meditation or anything else, because somehow we feel secure if I'm doing something to try and protect myself, to keep myself safe. The activity itself seems to be its own reward, although it actually isn't. It isn't. And... To illustrate this, um, some years ago I was teaching a retreat on a hilltop in France on the, in the foothills of the Pyrenees. And it, I can't remember what I was doing, but at some point I was just sitting on the hill and this fly came up. I'm not particularly bothered about flies, so I'm going to let it land. And then it bit me. It was big and it drew blood. I was like, <laughs> you know, I'm on the precepts. Not just for the retreat. I mean, this is, I take, the important thing for me. And so it's like, uh, okay, gently. Boom. And it's like, go away. I don't want to kill you. Go away. And then, you know, sometimes it would land again. And it's like, no. And it's like, ah, it was so painful. And after a while I realized, well, this is really suffering. This is really bad. The bite of the fly can't be worse than this. Okay, let it bite you. So, ah. Oh. Oh. That's it. Oh, okay. The fly's sitting there. Belly going boom, 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 getting bigger. Oh, doesn't hurt actually anymore once that first bit's over. Okay. A little while later, it's gone. It bit me about six times. It only wanted to bite me once. It was me. And it actually wasn't the bite. It was the... That was the real suffering. It was entirely optional. And at some level I chose it. And then I realized I didn't have to. And that's something that we also get to learn through this process. We don't have to choose that. 
we don't have to go, ah, when something impinges upon us. We can go, whew, instead. Yeah, relax, ah. Or the fear that comes up, ah, it's not going to eat me alive, no. In some places, maybe if there's serious diseases carried by such creatures, one might want to, you know, put some clothes on. But in that case, it wasn't an issue. So we keep busy, we keep busy, we keep busy. Do you notice yourself getting busy here? Busy doing your practice. Busy being really mindful. Because mindfulness is quite good for batting away those things that might be coming at me, like thoughts or feelings or stuff. I know. Sometimes we sort of think of it like mindfulness shooting it down. You know, we're in combat with it. Yeah, we don't need to do that. We don't need to do that. In some ways we're learning to become transparent, to let it come through. But that busyness, that doingness, is so compelling for us. When I was living at the old Gaia house in Denbury, three, three miles away, um, where we had this retreat centre um, up until 1996, for its uh, first 12 years of existence, um, one time when um, I was there in the kitchen, and I was on staff at the time, Christina Feldman, one of the, the founders and teachers here, she came into the she came into the kitchen during a retreat she was teaching, really excited, eyes really bright. She said, I've had an insight, I've had an insight. And this kind of struck me because she'd at that point then already been practicing for decades and teaching for 15 years or 20. And I thought, Christina's probably had a few insights along the way, but she's, I've had an insight, I've had an insight. I thought, well, okay. And she said, you know, the only way that the ego can survive meditation is to turn it into an object. And what she meant by that was that by making meditation into something that I get to do, the whole sense of self gets to perpetuate itself and sustain itself and make itself feel good in being the one who's doing all of that. So what would it be if we didn't have something to do here? We didn't set up anything we were measuring, any idea of progress or going somewhere. There might be part of us that felt a little unemployed. But maybe it might be a healthy, you know, maybe career break. Because, again, What's driving that busyness and that activity is, to a large extent, the seeking for certainty, security, and to kind of get things to last so that we can rest, so we can finally stop having to work so hard to do that. And yet, in that search for security, for certainty, for something we can rely on, something to kind of bulwark or defend us against the vulnerability and the openness of life. The only thing that is absolutely certain in life is that it ends. There's a reflection in Buddha's teaching. The Buddha invited us as practitioners to to take to heart, to, to reflect on this. Only death is certain 
And the time of death is uncertain. In this situation, what makes sense? What should I do? How should I live? Only death is certain. And the time of death is uncertain. So we go looking for certainty in order to have some sense of safety and security. But the only thing that's actually certain doesn't make us feel safe or secure at all, but quite the opposite. In fact, it plunges us in to the direct exposure, the contact, the being touched by that, (gasps) the uncertainty, the insecurity of life is its only certainty. So we can't escape from this uncertainty, this vulnerability. There is no mechanism that we can employ to avoid it because it is an expression of a fundamental truth about the way things are. So we can't get around that. But what should we do in the situation where we are vulnerable, sensitive human beings, subject to some point, at some point, no longer being that, some unknown, unpredictable point, when it ends. And for all of us, that's true. What do we do here? Because every day, people who thought they'd be here tomorrow aren't. When it comes to tomorrow, it happens every day. People who thought they'd be there just aren't. People who we thought might be there also sometimes just aren't. That happens. So what do we do? If we can't escape it, can we turn towards it? Can we go into it? Can we allow ourselves to explore it and see, is it really as threatening as it appears? Because we're talking about something that appears threatening. And yet, it's always here with us. We might be able to manage to not notice it for a little while, but not for that long. And yet it's always here with us. So we might question, is it so threatening? Not covering it over, allowing ourselves to explore what this is. This is really a whole new attitude, a whole new relationship we could make with this aspect, this truth of life. Helen Keller who was a woman that lived a remarkable life despite being blind and deaf and dumb. She once said, Security is mostly a superstition. It does not exist in nature and nor do the children of man experience it as a whole. Avoiding danger is no safer in the long run than outright exposure. Life is either a glorious adventure or it is nothing. Remarkable words. So what would it be to enter into this glorious adventure? Wholeheartedly.
not held back by the fear that may be there. Not held back by the fear that perhaps we need to understand more fully and deeply rather than simply react to. Because the fear comes down in the end, all fear in the end comes down to death, to annihilation, to some sense of our existence being obliterated, whether physically or psychologically or some other way in which we somehow imagine we won't continue to be after whatever it is. When we feel like, I can't be with it because it'll be too much. At some level, the unspoken piece is, too much means I'll be overwhelmed, I'll disappear, I'll be gone. In some ways it's that same fear. So what is this response, this experience that arises in us as fear? I had a, what for me felt like a very useful and amusing perspective with regard to this arise some years ago here when the the staff at the time decided to try and um, stop people throwing away the toilet rolls that were often thrown in the rubbish when they could be recycled. So they went round and in each bathroom someone wrote on a toilet roll, save me. And the idea was they'd be saved and then collected and, um, you know, recycled rather than thrown away. And I remember walking into one of the bathrooms just after this happened, looking at it and just sort of imagining what might happen if someone came in and saw and didn't realise what it meant. I thought, save me. It's a call. It's a call for help. Someone's in danger. <laughs> oh my gosh. You know. And then in another bathroom it says the other sign they use, we can be saved. So. There's more than one. <laughs> oh, that's what those that you know the, the locked trap door at the bottom of the tower. You know, there's someone trapped. You know, locked away at guy house. They're in danger, and you'd get really. Oh, what can I do? How will I save them? Huh? You know, save me. It's like that's what fear comes up and says to it. Save me, and we assume there's somebody that needs saving. But in fact, what the toilet roll message is saying, pay attention to this. Don't just throw it away. Pay attention to this. Take care of it. And that's what fear says to us also. Pay attention to this. Take care of it. Don't throw it away. This experience, this place of vulnerability. Because it's a gateway. It's an open doorway. And it's right here for you. Of course, I was rather disappointed when having, I, I don't know if it was to do with me talking about this a couple of times on, in an evening, the, then the, um, the message was rewritten to be somewhat more explicit and clear. So there'd be no risk of anyone confusing what was being suggested. I rather like the old version, but uh, you know, there we are. The, now we recycle the toilet rolls, we don't need to save them. With the sense of me that arises here, with the sense of I need to be saved. We're interested to understand that. We've been touching on it, we've been pointing to it, we've been looking at it. The sense of me that it all seems to be happening to. Or the sense of me that seems to somehow be making it happen. And notice we flip between those two. Sometimes it's happening to me, 
Sometimes I'm making it happen. They're really quite different things, actually, when you think about it. And somehow, sometimes it feels like I'm doing it, I'm making it happen. Sometimes it feels like it's being done to me. And it's like we keep shifting the sense of me around to try and fit it onto what's happening, to make it work. But we don't question the fact that the me that feels like it's being done to is actually a very different experience of me than the me that feels like it's making it all happen. Because, gosh, if I was making it all happen, I certainly wouldn't let that get done to me, would I? And if it was all being done to me, well, I could hardly say I was making it happen. But we shift, we move, that the whole sense of that self-existent center that we relate to or conceive of is something that's constantly morphing and changing. Changing according to what we're experiencing. And so we, we may be asked to question, is there something here that's permanent, that's fixed, that isn't changing, that really is substantial because it seems there isn't we can't find it we can't put our finger on anything and say oh that's it that's the me that stays always this way although there's the sense of me that keeps coming but it keeps coming and then sometimes it disappears completely have you noticed it's a relief ah but then it reappears and it says i'm the same one that was 10 minutes ago is it not always the one 10 minutes ago was unhappy this one's happy it's quite a different me that turns up it seems. So far as we start to really take on the truth that we're not in control here, that we allow ourselves to be exposed, to be open to the vulnerability of the human condition, we feel its preciousness, its tenderness, its sensitivity. But we also start to open to its potency and its power. Because as we come into contact with that vulnerability, when we open to it, rather than when we're resisting it or withdrawing from it, it actually has a quickening effect in the, in the core and the heart and the, in the gut. It, there's a sense of, that's actually something that brings us in contact with a real sense of spiritual urgency, of passion, of I really want to know and understand what is true here. I really want to discover and realize for myself what it is that the, the wise women and the wise men, the saints and the sages and the teachers have been pointing to throughout the ages. I'd like to understand this truly for myself. When we live in the illusion of control and security, that passion, that urgency goes quiet. It goes to sleep. And that's why there's something useful about allowing ourselves to go a little closer to the edge. Nothing about needing to push ourselves when we're near the edge. That's not required. But just allow ourselves to meet the edge when it comes to meet us. And to really abandon any ideas we might have about the territory. Because the ideas, and I touched on this a couple of nights ago, they're just another way of creating a sense of security and certainty and safety. And therefore they're keeping us away from the true and full exposure to vulnerability. And therefore we're not allowing this most potent agent to work in us and on us and through us and with us 
So we believe ideas about what we are, about where life goes, about what happens beyond the doorway we call death. And religious organizations and institutions will tell us all sorts of things about what happens and why and where we're likely to be going, up, down, north, south, east or west. And when we buy into that, it kind of makes us feel safe. At least I know. Okay, it's going to be hot while I know where I'm going. At least I know where I'm going. Or we might be fortunate to have the certainty that we're going somewhere pleasant, warm and airy. Nice. There's a certain security that gives. Maybe true. I'm not denying. I don't know. Maybe so. Heaven and hell and who knows what else. But the certainty has a way of somehow taking away something precious. And likewise, scientific rationalism and materialism that says, well, you're dead and then it's all over. That's just another form of religious certainty. Really, it's just the same. The scientists have no more knowledge of what they're talking than the religious zealots. We don't know is the only truth we have to offer genuinely about that territory. We don't know. And if we're willing to hold that don't know in the heart and trust that if it's the truth, we don't need to pad it or soften it. We don't need to stay distant from it. We don't know. Because what we fear as death is based on identifying with the body that is born and dies. And must, it's its nature, is born on identifying with this mind that arises and passes. And in that identification with this body-mind process and attaching to it, we get locked in to this process of birth and death. But this condition is not obligatory. There is the understanding, the realization, the discovery at the heart of spiritual teachings enfolded in the very vulnerability we shrink from, in the very openness that that vulnerability reveals, that undefendedness. There is enfolded in the heart of that reality the truth of life, which is unborn, undying, which is not circumscribed, which is not vulnerability or security, but beyond that duality. And if we're interested in understanding this, we have to trust what's true. We have to trust the uncertainty, the vulnerability, and enter it wholeheartedly.
what our heart most deeply longs for is to know that it rests in this. That is not bound to all that is born and having been born, all that must die. But nor is it apart from this. Nor is it removed in any way from all of this. The heart longs to know this. And that it is of this. So I'd like to finish with a a quote from a, a beloved teacher of mine who I'm also very fortunate to count as a friend. and uh, His name is Ajahn Suchito. Ajahn means teacher. He's an English Buddhist monk based in um, Sussex in the monastery there. And I was very fortunate this afternoon he was down this way and uh, came to pay a visit to my wife, uh, Catherine, and myself with a couple of other bhikkhus, monks. And uh, so I slipped out this afternoon to, to see him. And I feel very blessed to have had the chance to have contact with him just for an hour, a cup of tea. And so this is something he shared, a teaching he gave in the, the first Dharma talk I ever heard from him in India 20 years ago. And he said this. He said, There is no real learning on the intellectual level. There is only a kind of learning that we do when we have the humility to recognize that really the learning part is when we go to the edge of where we know and where we control. And the nobility of our life, the nobility of our purpose, the aspiration of our life says keep going past the area where you can't control anymore and trust. For me, this is the heart of devotion, of faith, of surrender. Not a surrender of responsibility, but a profound recognition of what the responsibility of this being is, to live in accordance with truth, to honour truth and to trust the truth of our life as it is. What lies beyond me and control and the sense of self is the joy of the deathless, the joy of the boundless, the mysterious vastness of life.
So may we all in our practice and through our lives have the courage to turn towards those places of fear and insecurity, to embrace the vulnerability of our human condition and in that embrace come to realize the joy, the mystery and the vastness of life that is unbound for our own welfare and for the welfare of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.